Again, thank you so much for being here. We're going to dismiss the kids. We're going to, we're, um, just for, by way of information, we're going to try uh, a, just a little bit of a, of a change of order of service for a month or so here and see how that works to wait to dismiss the kids until, um, until after I prayed before the message. So if you're wondering why we're doing that, that's not because somebody failed to take care of, of getting the slide up there, the reminder um, that we're going to attempt to create a little bit more of a, uh, of a structure for them and, uh, and to protect their time slot as well. And, um, and so we'll probably be doing this for a while and dismissing the kids at this point of the service. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd and do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. We just finished up a series um, going through First and Second Peter and we finished up last Sunday in Second Peter and we are doing something new this Sunday. We're starting our series in First Samuel. First Samuel, as you know, is written very differently than First and Second Peter, which are letters, epistles, um, which have like these short sections that patch that pack a big punch. Um, First Samuel is what we would call in the narrative genre um, or story genre. As far as you know, scripture is written. There are parts of scripture that are that are narrative. They're the telling of stories. Um, there's parts of scripture that are poetry. And, um, and there's wisdom literature, like you'll find in Proverbs and so forth, Ecclesiastes. Um, there's the prophetic books, and you find the prophetic books, you know, after the wisdom literature and the way that our Bibles are arranged. And, and then you find, as we get into the New Testament, the Gospels, and then the letters, and then, of course, Revelations is the apocalyptic literature. Um, and there's also some apocalyptic literature sprinkled into Daniel and a couple other places. So, one of the things that is sort of responsible or is, is incumbent upon myself and anyone who teaches the word is to be aware of sort of the different genres that they were written in. And I will be completely honest and tell you that I am more comfortable preaching a letter or an epistle genre than I am almost any other genre, maybe the Gospels. Um, I like taking those little short sections of verses and, and developing a message around those short sections of verses. In fact, we could have spent more time in Second Peter as far as I was concerned, but I didn't want to bog you down either. So this is a little bit of a different um, turn of the corner for me to preach a narrative book. I've never preached an entire book of Old Testament narrative. So this is a little bit of a new experience for me also. Billy and I have been working through First um, Samuel and, and talking about what, what's the theme, what's the, what's the primary uh, theme of First Samuel, um, or what theologians would call the melodic line, what's the melody that goes through this book of First Samuel. And it's really a book of transition of Israel's history. If you know Israel's history, you know that you know, they, they, went, they were in Egypt as slaves, um, descendants of Abraham, and, and how God brought them out of Egypt, raised up a man called Moses who led his children, led God's children out of Egypt into freedom. And then you know the story how they wandered around the wilderness for 40 plus years, 
And at the end of Moses' time, just as they're ready to go into the promised land, Moses dies and he gives over leadership to a man named Joshua. And Joshua was really the, the leader that God chose to take his children into the promised land. And they conquered the land. That meant driving out the heathen nations that were already in the land and pushing them out and defeating them. And God had told them, he says, I'll go before you and I'll even drive them out before you. And that experience really at the level of the faith that they had in God and where their faith was weak, they had to do the most fighting. But Joshua was a powerful leader. Joshua helped sort of divide the promised land up into the 12 tribes. And I had never noticed this before. Billy was actually the one that pointed it out to me. He said, you know, Joshua never appointed a successor, did he? And he hadn't. Because after Joshua dies, it sends the children of Israel into a period of time that we know of as the period of judges. And if you're um, paying attention before 1 Samuel, there's a little book of Ruth that's a story. And then before that book, there's a book called Judges. And that is the story of the judges' period of time in the nation of Israel. And it's not actually a great period of time. In fact, as we're going to look at here in a little bit, there's a time of confusion and a lot of struggle. And they didn't have a singular leader during that period of time. It was kind of multiple leaders in multiple places. And then God brings Samuel onto the scene. And Samuel is responsible for bringing in the first king. And as we're going to see, as we work our way through the book, that story didn't actually end real well. God kept Samuel around to bring in the second king. And there's a point where it looks as though the idea of establishing a king is maybe a bad idea. But then there's something that God does as David is established as king. And God begins to point the role and the office of king to the coming Messiah as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what I think we're going to see is the longing of the nation of Israel to have a king, to look for a king, one who will lead us with courage, protect us from our enemies, guide our decisions, was really a hunger for the king of kings. And it's a human desire. I think it was C.S. Lewis or one of those great theologians that talked about how we're all born with a God-shaped hole. You know, that, that desire in us for something bigger than us to guide us, to lead us, and to be worthy of our worship. And the, the longing that they felt as they were looking for a king was not actually realized in the best king of all of them, which was David. But it was fully realized in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that longing, looking for a king. So that's the theme of this book. There is this 
that in the stories, there is a story, and in the story, there's a bigger story. So there's layers, and we're going to look at that here in a little bit. So let's get into 1 Samuel, and I'm going to need to go through that. I've got a number of things I want to hit bullet points um, until we get to verse 9. One of the things that's going to be a little bit different as we work through the narrative is we're not going to read the entire passage or the entire text um, like we were doing with the epistles simply for the sake of time. So we're going to look for sections of verses that sort of give you the punch. So I want to just quickly tell a story. In chapter 1 of verse Samuel, we're going to take care of the first 20 verses today. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, first of all, there's a man and his name is Elkanah and he has two wives. That is the first problem that comes up. Two wives. It's not a good idea, in case you're wondering. Um, it doesn't generally end well in any of the stories where it happens. So he has two wives. Their names are Hannah and Penina. Secondly, they made an annual trip to Shiloh. Shiloh was a place where the tabernacle was at at that time. The temple had not been built in Jerusalem yet. And so Shiloh was that spot um, which would geographically be north of Jerusalem where the, the presence of God dwelled, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. And so once a year they would make an annual trip to Shiloh for sacrifice. And then Elkanah, it says, favored Hannah. So he has two wives. He says that he, took, that he actually, here's actually the wording that it uses. It says, Elkanah loved Hannah, insinuating what? That the other one was not really loved. That Penina is not experiencing love from her husband. And as you look at the text, you see Penina's actions are really the actions of an unloved person. She's mean. Next, I mean, she, Hannah is barren, it says the Lord had closed her womb, so in God's sovereignty, God had not allowed Hannah to have children, but then Penina keeps teasing Hannah about it and provoking her, because Penina has children, Hannah does not. And it goes on, year after year, it says in the text, it says in verse 7, it says, so it went on year by year. Now, have you noticed that going through a difficult season or a broken relationship, if it's a short season, we can survive it. But what do you do about those difficult seasons of hardship, disappointment, broken relationship that just goes on year after year after year, and it doesn't look like anything is ever going to change? I mean, I... Don't know how, how old Hannah was at this point, but I sort of imagine her year by year sort of going up and saying, I do believe in this God. I believe in Jehovah God. I mean, we go up here every year for the sacrifice, and we hear the stories again of how he delivered his children out of Egypt, how he saved them out of Egypt, how he took care of them through the, the promised land, how he gave them manna, how he, he gave them quail, and how he provided water from a rock. I mean, she had heard all of the stories of the miraculous deeds of her God. And she had to think at times, if he could do all of those things, why couldn't he give me a child? Why couldn't I have children? He's a big God. I know he's powerful. 
And she goes up year after year to make sacrifices to this God, which was what they did before the cross. And you know in her heart that somehow she's wrestling with what she is seeing in her personal life and what she knows God to be. How do I reconcile this? How do I reconcile the struggle of my own life and the disappointment with who I know God to be, who is powerful and strong enough that he could in an instant take care of everything that I'm going through? And it doesn't happen just for a little bit of time. It happens, it says, year by year. It's going on for a long time. And lastly, you find them there, and Hannah is weeping and cannot eat. She's got no appetite. She's sitting there, and it's supposed to be a time of celebration. It's supposed to be a time of feasting. They've made their sacrifices. There's a sense of God has heard our prayer. He has cleansed us again. Like There's a sense of, of peace, oneness with Jehovah God. And everybody should be happy, but not Hannah. Because she can't reconcile what she's experiencing in her personal life with this God that she just prayed to. And then in verse 9, I believe, is where the story takes a corner, and that's where I want to read this morning. I want to read verses 9 through 11, and then we're also going to kind of skip a few verses and then pick it up again in verse um, 17, I think it is. Verse 9, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along, or it's also up here on the screen. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Can we just stop there? All of a sudden, something's happening, right? We find her weeping. She has no appetite. She won't eat. And then all of a sudden, Hannah stands up. And what happens if you're sitting at a table and they were possibly reclining, and all of a sudden, somebody just stands up, especially somebody who's been sitting there not eating, and they're visibly crying and upset. And it says, Hannah rose. And this is the moment where something's going to change. Verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And then skipping forward to verse 17. And between those two sections, Eli accuses her of being drunk. And she's praying fervently. She's praying with a lot of intensity. Her heart's broken. And she's just there. But she's not making a lot of noise. She's just kind of, her lips are moving. So Eli's kind of watching her and he's like, wow, I think she's drunk. And she says, no. And he accuses her of being drunk. She says, no. She says, I'm just so troubled in spirit. So I'm pouring out my soul. So I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation in verse 16. It says, And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. It's quite a story. There are layers to this story. And I want to kind of, for the next few minutes, 
unpack it in the layers that I see. And this is the best way I know to put it up there, and this is just kind of a table. And, and I want to, first of all, I want to introduce the characters of the layers. First of all, there's Hannah. Secondly, there is Israel. And then lastly, there is just humanity, or I have them up there as people. These are the characters of the layers. And one of the first things that we see with this is that God sees. God sees Hannah. He sees Israel and he sees his people. God is a God who sees what is going on. And one of the lies of the enemy that, try, that he tries to convince us of from time to time is that you are alone and God's not watching. That God doesn't see what you're actually going through or what you're wrestling with. But clearly God does see Hannah. God was involved all along. It says the Lord closed her womb, but it also says that the Lord remembered her. So God sees Hannah, and God sees, and God hears. And isn't it good to know that God hears? And then thirdly, God answers. And we go back to Hannah, layer number one. God sees Hannah as she's barren, she's misunderstood, and she's helpless. We've covered the barren part. She's not able to have children. But there's also this aspect that she is misunderstood, I have taught this text, I think, at least three or four times. And I've always sort of taught it in the context of the value of prayer and the power of prayer and Hannah's prayer. And I just, for sake of integrity, really, I just went and started all over with this text and, and said, I'm not going to build it on anything I've ever done before in this passage. I just want to start all over. And again, I saw this barrenness being the big problem but God saw it but not just the barrenness but the misunderstanding because it's one thing to be disappointed but if you're surrounded by people who love you and understand there's a lot of comfort and healing but what if you're disappointed with the way life has gone and there's no one around you that really does seem to understand or care and Elkanah seems to care but he does it poorly like what does he say to her? He says, am I not worth more to you than many sons? Like not helping Elkanah. How many of you as wives, if you're upset, would find it helpful if your husband just came to you and said, it's okay, hon, you have me. <laughs> That's what he's saying. It's okay, you have me. Try that, husbands, next time your wife's upset. <laughs> let me know how that works out. But she's helpless. One thing to be barren, another thing to be misunderstood, she's helpless. What is she supposed to do? How is she supposed to fix this? How is she just supposed to miraculously make a baby begin to grow inside of her? How is she supposed to make somebody understand what she's going through? She can't. She's helpless. And so God sees all of that but it says that Hannah rose and God hears the plea of the afflicted. God hears Hannah's plea as she is afflicted. And she says, I'm vexed. Like she, she tells you what's going on in her emotions in this text. And God heard Hannah's cry. It began when Hannah rose 
and she goes to prayer. But then God answered with a promised son. He gives her Samuel. And he didn't explicitly promise a son. But he did, through Eli, promise that her prayer had been heard. And that she had been heard. And that was enough. Second layer is that there is Israel. And Israel, as I referred to a little bit ago, was, in that, was coming out of that time of Judges. Israel is suddenly discovering that when they came into the promised land, that there were not a bunch of heathen nations who were standing there saying, you can have our land. They said, no, you're going to fight us for it. And then sometimes they turn around and would attack Israel. And if that's not enough... The, the book of Judges ends with the most bizarre story in the last about three or four chapters in the book of Judges. And it's a story about a man who is traveling and he has this concubine, it says, but he refers to her as his wife. He travels into a town. A group of men raped her and misused her to the point that they killed her. He divided her body, sent it into the 12 tribes of Israel. I, you can't make these stories up. It is a story of confusion and turmoil and bizarre behavior. And now suddenly not only are the enemies outside of Israel, they're actually attacking each other. And there's bloodshed. And it's not pretty. And where is the king? There is no king. Where is the leader to say, stop, it's enough? He's not there. And there's this sense of abandonment and aloneness. And you find it in, you find it a couple places in the last couple chapters. It talks about in Judges 20, verse 3, they, there's sort of, they gather this guy and they say, how did this evil happen to us? In, verse, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, you find the men of Israel gathering together and it says there's weeping and there's lamenting as they realize now we're attacking each other. We're each other's brothers. And they're in danger of one of the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, disappearing altogether. And... The book of Judges ends with this statement. Like this is the last thing it says in the book of Judges before it goes into 1 Samuel. It says, And every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's a dark, dark place to be in as a nation. Where every person is doing what is right in their own eyes. Because obviously they're not going to agree. I mean, what opens the door wider for all kinds of evil, all kinds of crimes against humanity and against God to take place in a culture or in a nation than to have it said about that group of people, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Some of the things that we are seeing today in our culture is literally a result of that of a mindset that says that truth and morality are not determined by an almighty, sovereign, divine God, that they're determined by the way I feel at the moment. That was the dark moment of Israel's history. Every man did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. That's a bad time. And God saw them. And so this layer of Israel, God sees what they're going through, but then God also hears. 
And you find them crying out at the end of Judges as they're trying to just navigate, what do we do now? And God hears the cry of the confused. And then we get to 1 Samuel, and God answers with Samuel, who is the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. He's a priest, and he brings them a king. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that Jesus is ultimately the the perfect judge. And we understand that he will one day judge the world in perfection. We also know that Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is, according to the book of Hebrews, he is the priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he most certainly is the king of kings. And everything that Samuel represents and points toward is all one giant arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. As these people are looking for a king, they also understand that there is another layer, and that is humanity, that is us, it is people, where God sees us as separated, sinful, and weak. He sees our condition. He sees the the condition of humanity separated from God because of our sin. And if you're here this morning, and you're saying, no, that's not me, I'm not a sinful person, I'm a good person, I have some bad news for you. You're not a good person. None of us is good. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us aside to our own way. We've all done it. We serve ourselves, and we reject God. In Romans it says, says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, it doesn't, you don't need the Greek interpretation of the word all to understand it includes everybody. It means you and I, all of us have sinned. All of us are separated from God because of our sins. And all of us are weak, and by weak I mean that we, it is impossible for us to restore ourselves back to God. It's impossible for us to do enough good to actually atone for our own sins. You and I are in a rough spot. We we can't do enough to earn the favor and the grace of God. What are we to do? And God sees it. God sees our condition. And he's paying attention. And then God hears the confession of a sinner. And to stay in the book of Romans, he says that with the heart we believe to salvation, with the mouth confession is made. First John, it says, anyone who says he has no sin is a liar. But if we will confess and just admit to God, God, I am a sinner. I do need to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed from the inside out. God promises he will always hear that prayer. For John, or Gospel of John 3.16, For God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever, again, very helpful, whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the good news that God sees our condition and God hears the confession of a sinner. Anyone who just prays that simple prayer in faith and says, Lord, I agree. I do need to be forgiven. I am a sinner. 
and I need to, I want to be cleansed. God promises that he will hear your prayer. It says in Romans, I think it's in chapter 6, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Christ did not look at us as humanity and said, now, if you'll just get it right, like maybe if I could see half the population attending church regularly, I'd be ready to die for those people. No. It says, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. Because while we could not fix ourselves, we could not address our own problems, and like Hannah, in a rough spot because we're helpless without God's power, God hears, and he sends Emmanuel, God with us. You know, I could preach a Christmas morning message out of 1 Samuel. Because you see the shadows of the coming of Christ? You see the miraculous birth that God alone can do? You see the promised son coming to not only save a nation, but ultimately to establish a kingship that will turn and point to the messianic kingship, the, me the kingship of Jesus Christ, which will save the world. And what, what's the word? That, one of the words that comes around Christmas over and over, Emmanuel, God with us. Like this little baby is born into the poorest of conditions. Dark moment of Israel's history. Dark moment of the world's history as the light of the world. And God came, lived in the flesh through Jesus Christ. And he lived a sinless, perfect life. He taught, he healed, he led, he prayed, he taught us how to pray. And then he died. Perfect. In every way. Not deserving of death. But he took what we deserved on his shoulders. And he died a death that you and I deserved. God with us. And God answered the need of humanity through his son Jesus Christ. And so there's the layers of what God is doing in Hannah's life, which sort of points to the next layer of what God is doing in the nation of Israel's story and in their history. But then there's a bigger story happening of what God is doing in the history of mankind. Brings me to my sermon in a sentence. It says, God sees our need, God has heard our cry, and he has answered he sees our need, present tense. He has heard our cry, past and present, and he has answered, past. If you think that God does not hear your cry, that he does not see your need, you're not looking at the cross. If you're looking at your circumstances, and you're saying, well, it needs to go a certain way in order for me to believe that God actually hears people. You're not paying attention to what he has already done in the response to the need of people. Because one of the accusations 
of the skeptic is, well, why all the human suffering? Why is there death? Why do we go through hard things? Why do good people go through difficult things if there is a loving God? And that story comes up over and over. And the accusation is that, that, that if there is a God, that he must be apathetic to human suffering. And that's not true if you look at the cross. If you look at what Jesus Christ did, that he came and he lived a sinless life, and he suffered as an innocent man, and he was put to death as an innocent man to forgive you and I of our sins, you cannot accuse him of being apathetic about sin and death. That's not apathy. Who do you know that would die for you that you would accuse of being apathetic about your need? He's not apathetic. He's watching. He's heard. And he has responded through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has come and he has offered us life. And then quickly, there's some deeper study questions if you want to go a little deeper. But I want to just close with this. And Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up, I want to bring this to a close. I, I think almost at any given point in our life, all of us have areas of our lives that we are praying about and we're asking God for a miracle. We're asking God for something to happen. And if you're like I am, you don't always see the answer come the way you think it should come. You don't always see the healing happen like you wanted to see happen. The child that you pray for doesn't always come. The miracle in your bank account doesn't always happen. And sometimes it can go on for year after year. And there is this sense of, why is God working in other people's lives, but he doesn't seem to be working in my own? Or sometimes it feels like God hears other people's prayers, but he's, maybe he's not hearing mine. Is God really hearing? Is God really going to answer? And one of the things that I love about the story of Hannah is that in my Bible, verse 18 comes before verse 20. And I'll bet it does in yours too. If you go to verse 18, it says, Hannah was no longer sad. She doesn't have a baby till verse 20. And there's actually a significant amount of time that passes between those two statements. Here's my point. What God is doing inside of us is infinitely more important than what God is doing outside of us. What God is doing in our hearts if we allow him, even in the year after year of unanswered prayers. He is a relational God. He has invited us into relationship, and he changes us from the inside out. And we keep coming back to him, and we keep praying, and we're like, God, why aren't you fixing the problem? And God's saying, I'm fixing you in the process. And when Hannah comes and, and she prays, and she, she just pours out her heart to God, and all Eli really tells her is, God has heard your prayer. It says that she goes back and says she was no longer sad and she had her appetite back. She didn't have a son at that point. And I'm so glad that the text doesn't say, and Hannah had a son. And then she was no longer sad and she got her appetite back. I'm glad that, that we see the, the unfolding of the story 
in how that God in his involvement in her life and in knowing that God has heard and knowing that God cares was enough for Hannah in the moment, even before she held a son in her arms. Because that's helpful for you and I. Because there's times when you and I are going to hit those points where maybe nothing is changing on the outside, but what God is doing on the inside is the real miracle. Where God can change our hearts in the process because He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Because when we respond in faith and we say, Lord, I believe and I trust You, Jesus. Cleanse me of my sins. Change me from the inside out. Any circumstances that come into our life, we can actually move through with faith and with strength and courage because of what God is doing in the inside as we cry out to Him. God has heard. God has answered because He has seen our our problem. So, whatever is going on in your life right now, we live in the now and not yet. There is that layer, right? Like Hannah, we're kind of in the between. We know God has, has saved us, but we know that we're still working with these bodies of death. And we know that the ultimate salvation is coming. Can I just encourage you this morning? Like Hannah, whatever's going on in your life, there's a time to stand up and to say, I'm going to go to God. I'm just going to pour it out. I'm going to ask God to deal with what's going on inside of me, even if nothing changes on the outside. Even if my loved one doesn't experience that healing or the money doesn't show up like I thought it was going to or whatever, I am going to trust God to change me from the inside out because he's doing a bigger story. We can either fight the sovereignty of God in writing our story or we can surrender to it. And he's writing our story. And he wants to write yours too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this story of Hannah. God, thank you for just the, the, uh, the amazing redemption that you offer through, through Jesus Christ. And that there is not a person here this morning that you will not receive into your family if they will just ask. Lord, this morning, if there's anyone here who, who may not know you, Lord, would you help them to know that and understand that this morning and just to, in simple humility, just bow and even in this moment and say, Lord, I agree. Um, I have sinned against you. I have violated your holiness and I don't want to be separated any longer. I want to know you. Would you come and would you forgive me? Would you live inside of me? change me from the inside out or if there's anyone here this morning who needs to pray that uh, you give them the courage and the faith to simply pray that and to trust you that you do hear and that you have answered and you have responded we love you Jesus thank you amen let's stand